I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. If there's one plant that takes me to a particular time and a particular place, it's the star jasmine, Trachylus bermum jasminoides. Horrible name, beautiful plant. And I first got to know this plant when I was a student, the third year of my degree course. We were encouraged to go out and to work and to get practical gardening experience that they just couldn't give us at college. I found a job in Tuscany working in a beautiful garden on a hillside surrounded by olive groves near to a medieval walled city called Lucca. And the abiding memory of Lucca and the smell of the city was walking around on warm summer nights. The idea of going for an ice cream at 10 p.m. just seemed completely mad to me. But that's what you do. And those nights were scented with this beautiful plant, the star jasmine. It's a twining evergreen climate and it has these lovely frothy little white flowers in a kind of a propeller shape. And when you sniff them, it's the most delicious scent. There's elements of melon, there's elements of vanilla, there's a tiny bit of spicy clove in there. And that scent would just drift on the air on those warm summer evenings. And I still grow it in my garden. Every time I smell it, I'm instantly transported back to that time and that place 20 years ago in those sun-baked Italian streets. As you may have guessed, today's show is all about the many smells of our June gardens. It's getting hot and scent travels furthest in warm, humid weather. Think about the strong perfumes of tropical plants. Things like angels' trumpets and frangipani. Here in England, our native plants don't secrete quite such strong smells. But now, on the verge of summer, the fragrances of our favourite flora are still reaching a fever pitch. So get your noses ready for an aromatic, flower-filled deep dive. First up, garden designer and author Isabel Bannerman will share her thoughts on building a beautifully fragrant summer garden. Sweet pea connoisseur Roger Parsons will then give us the lowdown on strong-smelling Lathyrus cultivars. And finally, we'll end with a mystery. Urban naturalist Bob Gilbert is back on the show to tell us the curious story of how Mimulus moscatus, commonly known as musk, lost its hallmark smell. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. A few years back, renowned garden designer Isabel Bannerman published Scent Magic. It's a personal but informative book that immerses the reader in the world of our garden smells. It's a world that's often hard to capture with words, but one that she navigates expertly. 
And for Isabel, the witchcraft of scent is that it acts as an emulsion, fusing all. I really like that turn of phrase. It brings a garden, which can be full of disparate elements altogether. And today she's here to expand on that. She's chatting with us about what scent means to the gardener and how best to cultivate a balanced and aromatic plot. For one thing, gardeners are always incredibly discontented. They're not discontented people. They're, they tend to be very well-grounded people, actually. But you know, they're always fretting about their gardens and what's wrong and why they didn't do that and who's popped up here that shouldn't be. And So I think what I'm trying to say is that if you just let go and smell it, very often that lifts you, elevates you above all this sort of the endless fussing that you do. And it just, it is a drug in a way. I think there is a sort of spiritual element to smell, which we know through um, ancient religious rituals and things. So I think it, in the garden, it works that way too. And it quite often ambushes you. This is the other thing I think about it, is that you suddenly feel something before you've even registered a plant or before you've cognitively appreciated something you've done the smelling because it's essential part of primal existence taste and smell are chemosensory so that you're actually connecting with the molecules involved whereas the other three senses are just a physical perception so this seems to be one of the reasons why they're very intimate when my sister got married she was the first of my sisters to get married. I've got lots of sisters. And I was about 13 and I was a bridesmaid, which I didn't want to be. She got married in September and it was the 70s. And so the whole theme was brown and white and orange. And it was all dahlias and chrysanthemums. And the smell was overpowering. Because <laughs> they do have a very strong smell. But I don't think of them as scented plants, really dahlians and chrysanthemums, but they have this sort of fleshy smell of their stalks and leaves and every bit of them smells peculiar to me. I'm not mad about it, but it smells like florist shops, I think. And the whole church smelled like that. And I just <laughs> never got away from it somehow. And the science bears this out in that you lay down these memories. You almost kind of form a library and you particularly form it in the first kind of 15, 16 years of your life. I mean, I'm sure everybody talks about this, you know, that you smell something and it makes you think of a place or a person or a feeling as well. So here we are. It's the best moment of the year, I think. And this year particularly, it seems to be that everything has come together because we've had the late spring. And it's nice just to think about how to maximise the smell in your garden or your window box or your pots. So if I was shopping in a garden centre now, I'd look for Clear Me seedlings, which is an annual spider flower. It's very, very pretty in pink and white. The very dainty sort of spires of these sticky flowers and it's the stickiness that smells. I think what interests me is how something evanesces on the wind or it just billows out. I mean, those are the great plants. The rose rambling rector, for instance, does this thing of scenting the air for yards around it or the Philadelphus that I'm always going on about. I was in a garden yesterday having lunch and 
was very beautiful. It was made by a painter over the last 50 years. He died about five years ago. And his Philadelphia's bushes are enormous. I mean, they're the size of a... I can't think what. <laughs> size of a lorry. And yesterday it was wonderfully hot and still and the whole garden was just pulsating with this mock orange smell, along with his roses and honeysuckle, of course. And there's a tip about honeysuckle, which is quite useful to know, I think. It's a woodland plant and it likes to grow in the dark. So it likes its roots in the cool, like clematis do and lots of things, sweet peas. But if you can plant it on the dark side of a wall, the north side, and then it grows up to the top and the flowers will warm up in the afternoon and give their scent all evening. The annuals, I haven't talked about annuals very much. And funnily enough, annuals do have quite a lot of scented things. Obviously, there's tobaccos, which I absolutely love. There's an Australian one called Swabiolens, Nicotiana Swabiolens, which takes a long time to get going during the summer. And it smells obviously deeply sweet and in one of those kind of sugary, edible ways. And it has tiny, it's quite insignificant, sort of funny, long, thin flowers and leaves. So it's an odd plant, but really good smell. The other thing that you can grow from, here we are at the beginning of June, if you can buy Brugmansia, which used to be called Datura, and they grow wild in Africa, like Budlia, which is also great. But you can buy them now, grown from seed or cuttings, and they'll be quite small plants, but they grow really fast. You have to feed them. And then they have these amazing angels' trumpets and beautiful kind of champagne buff colour. And they have a, a narcotic smell. It's very, very fruity and exotic, and they smell at night. If you want to grow something astonishing, I'd say try and find some of those now. So my philosophy sort of is that you can grow for scent almost anywhere, in any conditions, or in a small way, in a big way. My father used to grow, he had a basement flat in London and he used to grow stuff in pots in the basement and it never got any light from the sun. But he could always grow things like tobacco plants and figs and he grew an apple tree and roses, all in pots. And I think it's, maybe I learned from him that if you've only got a small bit of garden, then you want it to work on as many layers as possible. So yes, you do want colour and you do want gorgeous leaves and you do want leaves that smell, flowers that smell, because it's just going to give you a bigger enjoyment at the moment, which is what I think about the senses. I think we can all get more out of life by smelling more and listening more and talking less. <laughs> Thanks, Isabel. Be sure to check out her stunning book, Scent Magic. You can find the link in our show notes. I love the way Isabel talks about chrysanthemums and dahlias having that smell of the florist shop. And sometimes those unexpected scents can really capture your attention and capture your imagination. I experienced a really unexpected scent at Chelsea. There's a plant called Eliagnus, which was grown in several gardens, in particular the Nurture Landscapes Garden by Sarah Price. It's been unfashionable for ages, but it's finding more and more uses because it's a really excellent, resilient garden plant. 
flowers look like absolutely nothing at all. They're quite small and quite dull in colour, but they chuck out this amazing scent. It's like the scent of lilies and it just drifts on the breeze in the most unexpected places and I love that. So don't judge a plant by its cover. There's always some unexpected joy to be found. Of course, we couldn't do an entire episode on scent without mentioning scented sweet peas, Lathyrus odoratus. So Guy Barter, RHS chief horticulturist and friend and co-presenter, sat down with sweet pea supremo Roger Parsons to get all of his fragrance tips. Roger is the president of the National Sweet Pea Society, co-author of the RHS monograph on Lathyrus, holder of the National Collection of Sweet Peas, and a member of the judging panel on the RHS Sweet Pea trial at Wisley. So what he doesn't know about sweet peas isn't worth knowing. So Roger, how did you come to work with sweet peas? Well, I've, I've always enjoyed growing them. I mean, I can remember growing sweet peas as a child and enjoying the fragrance and the colours then. But I suppose I started growing them seriously nearly 40 years ago and I used to grow all sorts of things. But there was something about the sweet peas, the elegance of the flowers, the intoxicating fragrance. They just won me over and increasingly I found myself growing more and more sweet peas and less and less of anything else. And how would you characterise the scent of Lathyrus odoratus? Oh, that's a tricky one. I mean, I know scientific boffins have sort of gone into this and have identified about four or five different fragrances. And I can detect a couple. There's a variety, Lisbeth, for example, which has a slightly citrus tang to it. But, you know, when people are uh, judging them at flower shows, etc., scent is never taken into account because we all judge them differently. We all smell them differently. A bloom can change the fragrance it emits from one hour to another. So if I had to summarise the fragrance in one word, I would say probably ephemeral. Yes, I mean, that's slightly avoiding the question there, I think, Roger. Um, <laughs> I would say the scent is kind of fruity, certainly. It's got a kind of um, spiciness about it too. And it's got a little bit of sharpness. So all in all, it's a really heady scent. So, Roger, if sweet peas aren't judged on their scent... How do growers and seedsmen and breeders, how do they characterise and measure the scent? It's not an exact science. As someone who sells sweet pea seeds, we categorise them between naught and six in terms of the strength of fragrance. All the sweet peas that we're talking about are the single species Lathyrus odoratus, Odoratus, as the name implies, is the scented Lathyrus. Most of them are in the sort of three or four range, as far as we're concerned. But there are just a few very special varieties that we categorise as a six. And I think anyone involved with sweet peas would say those few really have a very strong fragrance. Well, we can't leave the listeners hanging. Give us an example of a six. <laughs> Okay, well, my very favourite variety is one called Albert Blue. And it's probably worth uh, saying that most of these examples I'm giving you are this modern grandiflora type, you know, that are kind of intermediate in form between the Spencers and the old-fashioned ones. But Albert Blue, it's a daft name because the flowers are white 
but they do have a blue edge to them. And it has long enough stems for cutting, lovely frilly flowers, very good form, and the most adorable fragrance. Very prolific flowering as well. If I can give you another suggestion, colour-wise, cream is a colour that seems to have some of the strongest varieties associated with it. And Cathy is my favourite of these. It's a pure cream colour, similar in form to the old but blue, and a most delicious scent. There's an, another variety come out fairly recently. It's named Primrose. It's deeper in colour. It's the closest to yellow that we've got in a sweet pea. But the flowers are smaller. It doesn't have such long stems, but they've all got wonderful fragrance as well. Hmm. I was going to ask about that. It's like when you're breeding tomatoes, you can breed ones with thin skin, but they won't have a very good flavour. Or you can breed ones with a very good flavour, but they won't keep. Is there those sort of things in sweet peas as well? Some colours just don't go with sweet smell. I think that's right. I mean, to some extent, the fragrance seems to be associated with particular colours. It's probably an unplanned development that's arisen from the breeding of them in the history. I mean, the third colour that I, I'd like to mention is very similar to the two that I've already mentioned, and that's uh, where you have cream with a bluish edge, and there's one called high scent, uh, mm. not new very imaginative name, you might think, but it's very appropriate. The only mm. exception to this colour-wise is if you were to grow the wild sweet pea, which is a maroon and violet bicolour. Now, the original wild sweet pea, that has absolutely fabulous fragrance, but it's not often found in seed catalogues. But there are two others which have the same flower form. One's called Cupani, and that's very similar in form to the old-fashioned types and a more modern grandiflora type called Machicana. People sometimes ask, why is the sweet pea fragrant? Because the plants are self-pollinating. By the time the flower opens, it has already fertilised itself and therefore they have no need to produce fragrance to attract pollinators, for example. Is this some kind of throwback to a sweet pea ancestor that relied on insect pollination? That is the traditional explanation for it. I have heard another explanation that's uh, been put forward more recently, that it plays some part in deterring predatory insects. Now, I've not seen any evidence for that, so it's an interesting suggestion and it may well be true. And I've had another theory that has been put to me, which I quite like, but I'll tell you this with very much with tongue-in-cheek, that the flowers have evolved this fragrance to meet the needs of humans so that we will distribute the seeds all around the world and so the species can thrive that way. Well, that's very prescient of the sweet pea to develop a sense that humans would later come along and spread around the world. I favour that theory. Yeah, I, I, that's the one I favour too. <laughs> As a final note, why do you think gardeners should keep planting these lovely sweet-smelling annuals every year? 
There's lots of reasons why people want them. I mean, many people want them to be able to cut them, to bring into the house, but they're a wonderful plant in themselves. Even if you don't want to grow them formally, they're very useful for naturalising. I remember many years ago, the best blooms of sweet bees I ever saw were on an abandoned allotment which had self-seeded there. The plants were just running along the ground and they were sending up these magnificent tall stems as part of effectively a flower meadow, a wildflower meadow. So they're extremely versatile for garden decoration. Well, that's fantastic, Roger. It's really kind of you to spare the time and tell me and the listeners all about sweet peas from your vast and extensive knowledge. I hope you have a very successful summer growing sweet peas and I'm going to go and look at mine now and I think I'm going to have to raise my game a bit. So thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. If you're feeling the love for sweet peas, I would really recommend a trip to Wisley. They've got a fantastic sweet pea trial going on at the moment. So you can see 78 different cultivars all in one place. They're looking good now and they'll be looking good for at least the next month. So if you want to pick out your very favourite sweet pea, it's a great place to go. And one that I've grown this year is one that Roger mentioned, which is Matacana, which is a bit like the wild sweet pea. Again, it's a bicolour with beautiful deep indigo petals and then a keel that is a kind of burgundy crimson and that colour combination shining in the evening light is just magical. As Roger discussed there's a bit of mystery surrounding the scent of sweet peas. Why do they smell if they're not pollinated by insects? As it turns out sweet peas aren't alone. There's actually quite a few scent mysteries in the plant kingdom. And it makes sense because fragrance is hard to study. It's ephemeral, it's very personal, it's difficult to describe and to measure. One of the most curious cases about scent, however, has to do with Mimulus moscatus, or as it's correctly now known, Erythranthae moscata. In 1913, the world declared that the musky, famous scent of this plant had suddenly and inexplicably disappeared. Here's writer Bob Gilbert with the story. So gardeners will be probably familiar with the genus Mimulus, plants like Mimulus guttatus or Mimulus luteus, which are a lovely little plants often grown in containers. They have a distinctively shaped set of petals with the lower of five petals rather extended. It is supposed to look rather like the face of a grinning monkey. I personally have never seen that likeness, but it's that that gives this the name Mimulus from Mimo, the monkey or the mimic. And so they're often commonly known, the whole family are commonly known as monkey flowers. The musk itself is rather smaller and less showy than other members of the family. And it's rather sprawling, which is why probably once its fragrance had, for whatever reason, disappeared, people almost instantly stopped growing it. And musk had a very intense fragrance. It was described as earthy with a hint of sweetness. A smell, I have to say, which was described as rather sexual in its impact and appeal. Well, I wanted to know, obviously, why it had lost its fragrance and also from where and how this plant had come to us. And that was the question I started with. And in fact, this plant was one of many, many plants brought to this country by the explorer David Douglas. 
he became part of the expeditions funded, incidentally, by what was then the London Horticultural Society, which was to become the Royal Horticultural Society. He was funded on these various expeditions to the area we would now know as the northwest of the United States and southern Canada. So he did these amazing trips. I mean, he walked for thousands of miles. On one expedition, he walked from one coast of the American continent right across to the other. And yet, at the end of the day, he would sit down in his camp and write up in his journal the events of the day and, and listing the things he'd found and detailing what had happened to him. He brought back to this country as many as 254 different species of plant. Among them are the Sitka spruce, which is now the most commonly planted conifer in this country, and of course the Douglas fir, which is named after him. So it took some combing through these documents, through these journals of his, to find a reference to the mimulus. But I did eventually find it, and he describes finding it on, on a damp bank and collecting its seeds and bringing them back with him. Douglas brought all his collection back to the Horticultural Society and it was a man there called Linley who planted them all in the gardens and produced the first grown specimens in this country of Mimulus muscatus and he did the scientific description of them and he ascribed the name to them. Douglas himself wrote up his notes again when he got back, and it's interesting that when he first collected the plant in uh, what is now, I think, Ontario, he does not mention it having a fragrance. Although when he writes up his notes two years later, he does describe a fragrance in the plant. So there's immediately, you know, a bit of a, a puzzle going on here. A lot of the plants that Douglas brought back had practical applications and this was clearly the case for the musk because within a very few years you begin to find it in horticultural catalogues and being sold quite widely and advertised very largely for its fragrance and not only was it grown extensively in this country it was actually exported across the world and British colonialists and settlers when they were traveling to other countries actually took this plant with them perhaps because it gave them some sort of sentimental associations with home. The big question which intrigued me was, how can this, for whatever reason it happened, how can it have happened so suddenly that in just one year, the plant stopped smelling, not just in this country, but right across the globe? And I began to dig out references in old journals and newspapers, things like the Gardener's Chronicle or Letters to the Times or the Horticultural Journal. And I began to piece together references to the plant losing its smell. And in fact, those references predate 1913. I think the first one I came across was from 1898 when a man who had been very successfully selling musk plants from his stall in Liverpool began to find them one year not so much fragrant as I think he described it as rank and weedy in smell. And he, with great prescience, actually got out of the business that year. And then you begin to get more letters to the papers through the early years of the 20th century saying, some of my plants don't smell anymore or questioning whether other people have noticed this phenomenon. So actually... This event does happen, and, and it very clearly is a plant that was wonderfully fragrant, that lost its fragrance, but it is not, bang, 1913, there it goes. It's actually spread over a period of 20 to 30 years. The really significant year in this story is not so much 1913 as 1930. 
because it's in that year that a man called Sir Arthur Hill, who was then director of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, he gives a speech, an address to the British Association. There is just a short section within this speech on the enigma of the musk and why it's lost its smell. He doesn't give any solution to it, he just raises it as an interesting question. But the press are present at this talk and it is this one detail that seizes their imagination. It's headed a world mystery. As one of the reporters writes, I doubt there's been anything as puzzling in recent history as this event of the musk losing its smell. So it's in 1930, actually, some years after the purported event itself, that it really becomes big public news and really captures the public imagination. For years after that, you get a proliferation of explanations, some of them scientific, some of them pseudo-scientific, some of them downright daft. For example, there was one school of thought that the plant had never smelt at all, that it was kind of like the Emperor's New Clothes Syndrome, that people just thought it smelt and that idea was spread. And there was uh, one theory, for example, that it was being pollinated by bees that had been fed on medicated candy. I've no idea what medicated candy is, but presumably this was in widespread use and this was uh, suggested to stop the smell. But none of them, there wasn't any of them really which completely fitted the facts. And, and continuing my investigations, what I was to come across was a very interesting meeting that was held by the scientific committee of what was by then the Royal Horticultural Society. In this meeting, they come up with a completely new suggestion, and it's one which is very interesting because it turns the story on its head. It's rather, it turns the question on its head. It's hard to recreate how the strength of feeling that this loss of fragrance of this particular plant must have caused. As I said, it is not a showy garden plant. And with its loss of smell, this whole large horticultural trade actually collapsed. I found it impossible to buy seeds of Mimulus muscatus anywhere at all. And if you go to all the great gardening encyclopedias and manuals, you will find no mention whatever now of Mimulus muscatus, although it used to feature in every single gardening book. So with its loss of fragrance, the plant was totally disregarded, totally lost. And you know, the strength of feeling around this was, was really intense because the letters fly to and fro for years in the various uh, national press as well as in the specialist papers. And I think it says something about the way that smell and our sense of smell often evokes particular feelings and is related to memory. So it's particularly significant, I think, that colonialists and settlers took this with them because I think there was this nostalgic association with home. It's part of the power of the sense of smell, that it really does resonate with memories, and particularly with childhood. Thanks there to Bob Gilbert. We know we've left you on a bit of a cliffhanger, but don't worry, you can find the answers in Bob's page-turner, That Missing Musk, a casebook of mysteries from the natural world. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen because it really does help us spread the word and spread the love of gardening. That's all for now. So from me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.